What became known as the European Refugee Crisis began in 2015, and it had a profound impact on the European minds and European politics. It seemed to be a decisive moment, a moment that played right in the hands of a rising populist tide, and a moment that tested the European Union's ability to handle such a sudden arrival of refugees. For a good part of 2015 and 2016, the refugee crisis dominated the news cycle and became one of the most salient points of debate in the political world. But just how did the population react to such a mediated and politicized event? Was it a turning point of anti-immigration sentiment in Europe? Today, we speak with an expert who set out to answer this question. I am Esther Armagnac and this is the CSDC Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be visiting here. That's Elisabeth Ivers-Platten, Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Bergen in Norway. She is the Principal Investigator at the Digital Social Science Core Facility, where she studies public opinion and political parties. We are particularly interested in, in, in immigration and diversity and uh, also majority reactions to minorities. Professor Evels Flatten was in Montreal to present her latest research, in which she sought to measure how Norwegians' attitudes toward immigration were affected by the refugee crisis. So it was felt differently in different countries, um, but in the north of Europe, it was limited in time uh, that you saw this huge influx. Now, you've been having immigrants coming to Europe in larger scales for a long time now, uh, but this particular, what's become known often as the refugee crisis, was a sense that things were out of control. And so what was unique is we had collected data about people's views about immigration before anybody knew that this was gonna happen. And then it happened. In the fall of 2015, uh, Norway saw more refugees come than they'd done at any time uh, after the Second World War, actually. Uh, it was a huge thing, and I was there, and everybody who was there knows that it was it dominated the news. It was, it, it's, we say that it sucked up all the oxygen in, in, in the news media. Everybody talked about it. And there's a really extraordinary uh, time. And so this paper is about that. It's about the public reaction to that. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and we can go on to talk about what that public reaction was because it was multifaceted. In a way, they got lucky. Before the crisis ever hit, they already had access to a group of people who were answering survey questions about immigration. This allowed them to track how these attitudes were affected by the sudden politicization and mediatization of this new wave of migrants. So what did we learn? So one thing that we're able to document, and that's that you have an exclusionary reaction to an event like this in the short run. So if you ask some of these broad questions about you know, is immigration an advantage or a disadvantage to Norwegian society? It, more people think that immigration is not so great for Norway uh, during the crisis and after the crisis. And we see this and we say that the scope of the attitudinal change is, is substantial on three dimensions. So the first one is substantive. It's not only um, attitudes, policy positions related to refugees specifically that get affected, but everything related to what one might think of very broadly as foreigners. So, so that the scope was large in that sense. Um, it was also large in another sense, 
and that's that it lasted uh, long after the situation had been brought under control. So in Norway, the out of control situation, the large influx happened between uh, September 2015 and it actually ended in December, by the numbers, it ended in December 2015. So it was just a few months. But then of course, lots of things happen. Asylum centers get established. We can talk some more about that. But still, we, um, we see that the uh, turn in, a, in exclusionary direction in attitudes of the recipient population is negative and it's immediate. So it happens first time we measure after there's been an influx. And then it lasts. We measure it like six months after, 12 months after, 18 months after. And we see, a, by 18 months, we see one of our measures returning back to the levels that they had before. And then two years after, we see all of our measures returning to baseline. So attitudes were indeed affected. Anti-immigration sentiment was more intense after the crisis. And it took two whole years for these attitudes to return to where they were prior to the refugee crisis in Norway. You gotta realize what happens in this period. If you think in Europe at large, Brexit happens, uh, the French presidential election happens, uh, the election to the German Bundestag happens, where uh, uh, a far-right party gets represented in the Bundestag for the first time in a long time. So a lot of decisions and events in Europe happened in a period of time where um, uh, public opinion was uh, different from what it would have been hadn't it been for the refugee crisis. But um, it did revert back to baseline. So you could have seen a shift, like you could have seen this shift forever. You know, the, uh, many of the refugees are, are there. I mean, they continue to live in, in Norway and in Europe and, and um, it can, uh, there continues to be a need for policies to integrate and all of that. Um, the situation in Syria, you know, and in lots of uh, the places where uh, the refugees were coming from is not under control. So you could see there could be many reasons why uh, these attitudes would remain uh, in this uh, particularly, or that they would just, that the attitudes would just shift, you know, from um, what they had been before to a different stage, a more hostile or a more exclusionary kind of view. But that we don't see. Another key question that keeps popping up when we think of attitudes toward immigration is how the media and their portrayal of such events influence people's attitudes. So I think one thing to think about, to, to know about the media, is that journalists are also people. <laughs> so when there's a sense of national crises, it's incredibly hard to keep a uh, clear mind or be level-headed in these kinds of circumstances. And I don't think journalists are any better or worse at that than anybody else. The refugee crisis lent itself well to um, a sort of a portrayal of um, a, a situation that was out of control. Uh, and we know, we know that there were uh, the changes in the way uh, the refugee crisis got mediated, coincided with the ch swings in, in how public opinion thought. And, and so there, there's a concrete example of it. So one, so uh, many will remember a, a photograph of this little boy on a beach, Ailan, uh, who had died. And it was just heartbreaking. 
and and this is in, in Europe created this massive massive mobilization uh, in uh, to help refugees so so this these all these new organizations called refugees welcome that gets established and this was in the summer of 2015 uh, so there had been organizations but there was a change in how many uh, came together around that um, these and and these kinds of welcoming attitudes also spread and the media was part of it uh, and and uh, and political leadership was part of it and Angela Merkel gave this beautiful speech where she said you know uh, we will do our fair share and we will take the refugees unfortunately it does look like this some of this um, uh, contributed to create the uh, extraordinarily large influx of refugees because Europe had been sending all these signals don't come we don't want you and all of a sudden Europe is sending signals that we actually will help you and of course this impacts people but then this kind of takes on a logic of its own and, and, and then you get this situation of this this large influx this two million people the, um, that submit asylum uh, claims and this completely breaks the whole system of Europe for uh, um, receiving refugees and and um, uh, and then you see a change, and the change is in media portrayal. So it's away from the individual, the little child in need of help, and it's more on <clears throat> what uh, uh, in now nowadays in the U.S. has been called caravans, but it used to be called it, but just groups of people in long lines uh, walking and coming in, um, and a sense of uh, of, uh, of of loss of control. This perceived loss of control over immigration was accompanied by the rise of populist parties everywhere in Europe and in America. And Norway is no different. Professor Ivars Flatten has been studying populist parties for almost two decades now. We asked her what impact the refugee crisis had on the rise of populist parties. I've been interested in the question of why uh, certain people vote for these parties um, since the late 1990s. And I'm still writing about it because I still haven't figured it out. I'm kind of a slow learner. <laughs> it's a really tough question. The reason why people vote for these parties, I think there are two main lessons that can be taken from what we've um, studied. The first is that it is about nativism. If you talk about populism, there are very different, many different populist narratives to draw upon. Uh, not only not only the anti-immigrant one or the nativist one, there, there are other kinds too. Uh, to take one, there is an, a sort of a rural countryside populism which pits people living in the countryside against city folks. Uh, and there is a left-wing uh, populism that pits the poor workers against the rich and the wealthy. So, uh, and, and all of this can be strewed as populist, as, as the people against some uh, illegitimate elite. What's particular about nativism when it comes as populist is that it pits uh, immigrants as outsiders against the real people, and usually some sort of link between a political elite that are on the side of these immigrants rather than the real people. The other populist uh, narratives are also gaining in strength and there are various combinations uh, but when it comes to these far-right parties uh, the nativist element has been very important nativism has been on the rise and according to professor Ivars flatten there is an interesting historical explanation for this of course there's a specific historical legacy concerning the far right in europe 
And that legacy is the Nazi legacy uh, and the legacy of fascism. Um, and, and this is still important. Um, and it has delegitimized a lot of positions, political positions on the right uh, in Europe for a very, 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 very long time. Uh, and, and this is likely what created a space for these new parties to take positions that other parties wouldn't go there. And so I think this is one of the reasons why there's such a hodgepodge of various uh, organizations that become successful in the anti-immigrant issue in, in the 80s in Europe. Uh, because the other parties don't want to go there. And then you have all these desperate parties that are looking for an agenda or willing to do anything. And so you, you have a lot of people, not, not very many of them are hardcore coming out of the Nazi uh, groups uh, because they tend to not do so well electorally. Because as long as, as political parties maintain a linkage symbolically, directly, organizationally, historically with the Nazis, voters have tended to flee away from them. So what they've done is that they've carved out the space where they're saying we're anti-immigrant but not Nazi. Uh, you can't really understand the nature of and the conflicts around the populist far-right initiatives in Europe today with also understanding that it isn't only a politics about the present, it's also a politics in relation to the past. So that's that. So I don't think you've seen any, any time in history ever a, a, a situation where you've had that uh, a considerable immigration, uh, whatever the source of that immigration is, and not have it had a nativist reaction. So we had that. So we had that nativist reaction in Europe from the 70s and 80s, but it had nowhere to go because there were no political parties that would take on that message because of the Nazi legacies, because it was considered illegitimate positions to take on. And then you get these new political entrepreneurial actors that go in and try to carve out a new space. And it's not just a matter of the old Nazis sort of coming back in, although you had some of that, um, but mainly it's been new actors coming in and trying to carve out a place that is nativist, but not far right. And, and it's been incredibly contentious. And that's why it sucked out so much of the oxygen in political debate everywhere in France and all, because, because you're then debating the legacy of the past and how to deal with the present at the same time. We are living in a moment where questions of immigration are incredibly salient. These questions are everywhere in the media, often portrayed in sensationalist ways. Populist parties are leveraging these issues, amplifying the scope of the public reaction. But a lot of these reactions are not based on direct experience. An interesting aspect of Professor Ivor Splatten's research focused on smaller communities, communities who had direct contact with asylum shelter for refugees. In these local communities, her findings were different. What was fascinating is that all the, all the while, while we saw this response nationally that was exclusionary, we actually saw an acceptance of the centers in the local communities, in those local communities that had them. Once they were there, and it took only weeks, uh, there was this huge acceptance reaction. And we've been digging some into that, and, and it looks like that is related to not a lot of 
contact and friendship being formed, although that could happen. But what we saw was this, they, they experienced that having the asylum center in their neighborhood wasn't as um, awful or worrisome as they had thought. And then they adjusted their views. And that, um, that to me is the most hopeful finding that we have had. With that small glimmer of hope, we want to thank Professor Elisabeth Tivers-Flatten for having taken the time to speak with us. For the CSTC podcast, I am Esther Armagnac. See you next time.